Welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture with people in Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU. Common Ground Radio can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. here on WERU Community Radio. Archives of previous episodes can be found at weru.org and on the WERU app. My name is Holly Cedarholm, and I'm your host for today's episode of Common Ground Radio. Today we're discussing traditional food systems with Barry Dana. Barry is a former Penobscot Nation chief and an advocate for Penobscot values, traditional farming, language revitalization and education, and environmental protection along the Penobscot River. Growing up on a Wabanaki reservation on the Penobscot River, he learned canoeing, basket making, snowshoe making, hunting, gathering, and other native traditions from his elders. Barry studied forestry and education at the University of Maine, Orono. Barry, welcome to Common Ground Radio. Would you like to further introduce yourself? It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think that all sounded pretty good. I'm also a husband, a son, a father and grandfather. Um, and currently, totally addicted to hiking. As far as addictions go, I think that's a good one. <laughs> I recently read an essay of yours titled Sovereignty for Native People, which is included in Mafka's forthcoming book, The Organic Revolution. I just wanted to read a little piece of it to kind of set the tone of today's conversation. In it, you write, I always go back to food as the underlying component that allows us to breathe, allows us to live, run, work, think. Whatever you need to do without food, you no longer live. If you're going to eat, that food has to come from someplace. If you're not growing it, hunting it, fishing it, gathering it, then you're dependent on someone else, and that is not a sovereign people. Can you talk about the importance of traditional foodways to sovereignty for Native people in Maine? It's, it's like being a parent, you know, you want to live up to a particular responsibility raising your children. And there's certain um, essentials that you have to provide. And as I see tribal leadership, that sense of providing today in tribal organizations uh, always has food way down at the bottom of the list because they're still trying to meet the needs of today's people in terms of housing and, and medical and education and so many other things. So that's where the focus is. And when we as tribes um, focus on sovereignty, it's always framed by a legal battle we're having at the time with the state of Maine. And that's all critically important. So my effort to add to that is to remind Native people that along with you know, the legal aspects of sovereignty comes all the other domains that have to be considered as well. You just, you can't have 10 leaks in the dam and only fix one. You, you've got to approach everything holistically. And Sajin, uh, how do you say that? When everything works together. Synergistic. 
Yeah, I like those three, four little uh, syllable words. They, they tongue tie me. Yeah, so um, it's been something that's been drastically overlooked and it's, it's no one's fault until you're educated about it and you still choose to not do it. Then you're maybe, you know, I would have to lean on you a little harder. So we grew up um, in my time, growing up on the reservation in the 60s as a kid, there were a couple gardens, just a couple, but we also were receiving food from the government, you know, prepackaged food. And some of it was actually uh, life-saving, <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're hungry, you're gonna eat this stuff. And uh, some of it was pretty awful. Um, but I have to say, even the worst of it was better than a lot of the processed foods that people buy off the shelf today with their hard-earned dollars, thinking they're buying their, their family supper when in fact, you know, it's really not food. So Native people today face some, per capita the highest rates of diabetes. Well, how did we get there? How did all of a sudden Native people go from the most healthiest pre-contact to having the most illness with diabetes. And, and then it doesn't stop at diabetes, you know, obesity and heart disease and cancer. And now even Alzheimer's is, is plaguing native communities. So we, we petitioned the federal government for money and we do that under our sovereign status as recognized by the federal government. And we want that money so that we can manage the diabetes. There's nothing in there that says, let's cure diabetes. And I would, I would take it further. Well, let's put something else in there that says, let's prevent diabetes. So I was forced at age 50 to take a look at my food. I thought I was doing really well. I was running marathons. My wife and I canoe, um, whitewater canoe champions physically really fit and then suffering a heart attack. It's like, whoa, <laughs> um, the brakes were put on. This, this was a major blow to my thinking that I was eating good. I, we have a garden, we're growing our corn, squash and beans, we hunt, you know, so we're eating moose meat, yet I still had this heart attack. So as I looked further, and made a list of what I was eating, I was still eating processed American food, you know, even though it was on top of traditional food. So it wasn't enough to supplement with traditional native food. I had to omit the, the processed foods off the American shelves that included flour, sugar, margarine, and corn oil. So those were the doers. Those what put me in a bad spot. And since those were cut out, we've gone back to real butter, which we don't make, but we buy. Um, and upped the effort in the garden so that um, our suppers now are always 100% moose and vegetables from our garden mostly corn, you know, when it's in season. So it just, it, you know, my whole revelation through that was native people are 
need to break that colonize connection where we're thinking what we buy from the store is, is good. It's food and, and it's getting us through a survival situation, but it's in the end, it's catching up to us. So I just wanna make sure that when we talk sovereignty, that we have to include every aspect of, of human existence within that. You know, our land is, is a piece of that and our traditions are a piece of that. And when you look at the most basic, uh, fundamental, essential element that we need, you know, it's water and it's food. We can go a long time without food, but we can't go a long time without water. So, you know, if someone else is too busy managing diabetes, then someone else has to take the reins on traditional food. So just in my own way, I'm not employed by the tribe to do this, but in my own lifestyle and my wife, you know, working with me, her name is Laurie. Uh, Laurie and I do a lot for, I mean, as, as people here know, um, there's a lot that goes into food sovereignty. You know, trying to make sure that, uh, you know, the primary, the, the, the biggest component of your daily food is, is traditional food. So that's, that's how I come to it. It, it. It's a matter of life and death. Thank you for sharing your personal story. You mentioned moose and corn as being some of the traditional foods that are really important to you today. Are there other wild or cultivated foods that you can speak to that were important either pre-colonization or remain important that you would like to see sort of still honored and existing within the tribe? Yeah, I, I would go so far as to say that every food that we ate here in Wabanak land, pre-contact is as vital today, every one of them. Every one of them provides a certain essential element that we need to be uh, as healthy as we were then. The number one thing that we struggle with is fish. Our rivers were blocked by dams. And when we were moved from, the, from people, colonizers coming in, our, our land base was reduced to a small island in the Penobscot River and other islands, upriver. And below us were dams. So the fish stopped coming. Well, if you're not going to eat your traditional fish, what are you going to eat? You know? So you start eating survival food that you think is preserving life. It, it extends it, but it doesn't preserve it. So um, I think if this is this is the big this is the biggest problem right now that I see in Indian country. We get grants for food sovereignty. We got we got really good at grant writing. So we get those grants and it pays somebody a salary uh, to um, explore, plan, um, record the data. Extrip, extrip, extrapolate. How's that? What's that word? <laughs> <laughs> extrapolate. Extrapolate the data, and do a report and an evaluation. So that's our food sovereignty. 
it's the grant process. And if we go beyond that, maybe we get a greenhouse. So that's, <clears throat> that's good steps. But, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not sovereignty in terms of food. We need to go <clears throat> to where we were pre-colonization uh, pre with the fish. Fish is number one. I, I came to that realization, actually not too long ago. And that's how I go about my, my studies about my culture. It has to be through personal experience. I refuse to read books written by white people about native culture. No, <laughs> they screw it up. If I read it, it's only to, 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 to see where they messed up. And they messed up native people who read it and, and, and believed it. So anyway, I came to this revelation that fish is what's most needed today in, in the native diet. That, if you put it back in, then, then we can take out the wheat flour, I would hope. That's, the, that's my recommendation. All right. If you don't have fish, if you don't, if you're not buying fish, if you're not buying, you know, even beef or whatever, then you got to eat something. And most people are eating, you know, um, wheat flour in the form of pancakes and waffles and bagels and sandwiches for lunch, pasta for supper. And it's just, um, I see it. And that's what I did at one time. And <clears throat> so I would, I would always put fish as number one. So dams are being removed, fish bypasses are being installed, fish lifts are being installed. So the fish are, are gradually coming back. And I'd, I'd also like to see more of an agreement between the tribes and the state where we can go back to the ocean and hunt our traditional foods that we did at one time, which was seal, porpoise, um, and I know that's probably not going to get a lot of support, you know, people who love these animals, but that's, that, um, that's the fact of the matter. Those were the foods that we lived up. We have, you know, it's all recorded in our language and our stories, traveling out into the bay, um, two fellas in birch bark canoe. Um, they had what they needed for porpoise and, and also sturgeon. The sturgeon are coming back thanks to the dam removal. Yep, so we don't have to go as far south down, down the rivers to find them. But um, this is what sovereignty does. It gives you a seat at the table so that as a sovereign people, you can negotiate and, and discuss with other sovereign governments like the state of Maine or the federal government, what our needs are. I, I think if we continue down this road where, you know, I get a paycheck, but I have to work 40 hours a week to get that paycheck. I don't have time to go out and shoot a porpoise. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy what's quick and easy, you know? So I think, I think uh, tribal governments um, aren't mature enough yet in this, this discussion. And I, I don't mean mature in a bad way. I just think we're still kind of, uh, I don't know, suffering from getting, trying to get caught up with all the daily needs that there has to be more, some, the tribes need to get together and, and, and get this food, traditional food. You know, I don't mean tomatoes in the garden, in a greenhouse. Those are nice, those are pretty, but it's not calories. You know, we, 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 
if you want nutrition, if you want elements, then you eat the bone marrow. You know, there's so many things in the garden we don't need to be eating, but they're good. You know, we like them and they're crispy and all that other stuff, but you don't need it, right? You can get your elements from that porpoise bone marrow, from the porpoise liver, from the seal's liver, the brain, the kidneys. I mean, these are the traditional foods that we are lacking. I got to tell you a story. A Passamaquoddy fellow gave me a big chunk of porpoise. He told me how to fix it. I brought it home, put it in the oven, did what he said. I unraveled the tinfoil and my kids, five kids stood at the counter looking at it. And they just, it's like, what is that? And I said, it's porpoise. So they started to taste it. They were like a pack of wolves on a small deer. It was so amazing to see this genetic memory. They had never had porpoise. I never had it. And I still haven't had it. Thanks to my kids, they ate it all up. I, I didn't interfere with them. They just kept, you know, eating it. And I thought, this is a real amazing moment. Um, we're seeing traditional genes being awoken. All right. So I think that is the pathway for Native people today. we got to get back to that. You mentioned a couple of things in terms of interactions between sovereign governments, between the tribe and the state of Maine and the U.S. government. But are there other things that can be done to forge these foodways today? Like, is there a cultural revival of some of the skills like hunting and fishing? Are, are there things happening in the community in other ways? There is. Yeah. Um, and again, like, like myself, it's more the individual choosing to do that. Um, having probably grown up in a house where these things were talked about, I uh, had an uncle who took them fishing, hunting. Uh, it, we're, still, we're still pretty strong with hunting and fishing. Um, the problem, of course, is there's fish advisories, so you can only eat so much fish, and, uh, but, but we're still doing that. It's not to a sustenance level. It's to more of a supplemental level for, for a diet. I got a cousin who goes um, down Bangor and then down further down the Penobscot, and he just pulls out the biggest striped bass. Yeah, so um, he himself, not because the tribe sent him, but he is just a fanatic. Um, I don't want to say outdoorsman, but he's he's really really deeply into the culture, and so he moves, hunts, he hunts deer, bear. And, and does a lot of fishing. And he's always posting it on Facebook, so we get to see it. So that's how we do it right now. I think there's a, there is like, I, would, I, don't, I don't know about grassroots because we've always done it. It's not like we're trying to bring it back, but with, with the striped bass, that's something new to us because we finally got the dams out and they were allowed to return. Um, their numbers have, have come back, you know, and on, on the Kennebec River too. Yeah, so I'm always, I, I try to remind myself that there are individuals, probably I'm going to jump out here on a limb a little bit, in every Native community and Native people who don't live in Native communities who are taking it upon themselves. I know a lady who is um, doing the wild ricing. Yeah. So, you know, we share notes and we, uh, we talk about getting together and show each other how to do this stuff. So there is a lot of individuals who are, are doing as I do. Um, 
And I, I don't think that's an excuse for the tribes not to do more, you know, because, you know, we are very much community-based people. And um, I actually got into gardening in college. The only experience I had with gardens before college was raiding them at, <laughs> raiding them at the night, you know, going in and stealing cucumbers and tomatoes. And, uh, but I actually got a job working for the tribe that there was a community garden. And just that name alone, community garden, unifies the community. And it was a big grant. They had a big space to work with. There was just rows and rows of corn and everything. And my job was to go in and weed it, water it. And I, I think I've pretty much had a garden ever since. It really, it really uh, woke something up in me as far as you know that genetic memory. You are listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU Community Radio. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm, and my guest today is Barry Dana. We're discussing traditional foodways and food sovereignty. Since this is a pre-recorded show, we are not taking calls. What does your garden look like today? It's late August, almost September. It's a very prolific time, typically, for gardeners and growers. Looks good. Um... We've got tons of corn. We grow a, a, a heirloom sweet corn. So we get to enjoy that every night and then we can save the seed. Um, we still have bags and bags of flint corn that we've grown over the years that we use to make bread with. We've got massive pumpkin leaves. I've never seen the leaves and the pumpkin look so huge. They look like elephant ears, you know? So we've got a lot of pumpkin growing and squash. Um, we've got uh, traditional beans growing. They're doing well. That's where I, I like to focus. I like to focus on those more traditional ones. But then, uh, but then we also have carrots and beets, onions, a lot of garlic. And we have traditional tobacco finding its way into our garden. It's funny. We, we've got kale, um, garlic, and tobacco that are growing on their own. So I just figured, well, we must need them. <laughs> yeah, they look great. Um, uh, Laurie likes to do potatoes, so we have potatoes. Yeah, um, and it looks good. We haven't had to water it since I can remember. It's such a strange climate we have now. One day, you know, one period you're watering every day, the next you don't have to water, so it's weird. In your essay, you write a little bit about planting the rows of corn with fish and mulching your corn rows with corn stalks. Are you using some of those traditional methods in your garden? Well, um, time is of the essence. So we do as much as we can and as quickly as we can. So You'll, you'll see uh, all these memes on Facebook, you know, really bad mouthing people for having lawns instead of gardens, you know. So, and, I, and, um, and I know where that comes from and, and it's right to do that, but um, I actually mow my lawn quite a bit. And probably the least um, species growing in my quote unquote lawn is grass. The rest of it is over and these dandelion looking things. I don't know what they are. And, and other species that I don't know what they are, but they, they provide this really nice green thick mulch. You know, you get it in between its seeds phase 
And we just spent uh, probably four hours yesterday in that heat, mowing and mulching. Oh my goodness, we were baked. Oh, but that's, you yeah, gotta do it when, when it's there. You know, the lawn was just perfect for mowing it and, and I bag it. And so we had a lot of green mulch to both the compost pile and the garden itself. It helps retain the water, keeps the soil mo moist and doesn't let it dry out and um, keeps the other plants that other people call weeds, I hate to call them weeds, <laughs> keeps them you know, at bay. Um, so that works really well. We also add um, maple leaves to the soil, uh, go out and rake those up in the fall. One thing we did, we bought a rototiller and oh, I, you know, God, it made such great soil. We haven't touched it in I bet five years. When you're mulching and doing things, I don't know, more connected, hands-on, you find the less machinery you need. I mean, I, my mower works great, and I love that, but it just gets so much work done. If I didn't have a garden, I wouldn't have a lawn. There's no way, that, that's insanity. I, mowing for what, for looks? Eh. You know, it would be all apple trees or, you know, raspberries, other things like that. Um, yes, and then there's fish. I, I dig, um, and we do the corn in rows. We've done the mound method, and we just find the lay of our land facing, it, it slopes to the south. It, it really likes the rows. It gives each uh, plant a, uh, like it's, it's the amount of sunlight it needs. So. It, it works for us, so we, we stick with it. And I get fish and lay it in and then cover it. I, I'll put the corn stalks on top of the fish. And I do that because, first of all, you wanna get rid of the corn stalks so that the, the pests don't come back. And then um, I think they provide a little bit of aeration once you cover it up with the soil again so that the fish rot faster. Um, because if it doesn't rot fast, then I've got coyotes and fox digging it, digging it up. <laughs> or if one of my huskies get loose, they head to the garden too. So you're talking about using fish and mulches in your garden as traditional practices. And I'm seeing a connection between organic gardening or what's called organic gardening today. Can you speak to how they're aligned yeah, um, I would go with the one that's cheaper. And most um, easily gotten. Accessible, is that the word? Yeah. Okay, so if you have the time to do it without buying anything, you know, that, you know, using traditional methods, um, then that's, that's how we do it. So I don't buy, we don't add manure at all. I don't subscribe to manure just because I've never heard of it being used in this neck of the woods. And if I can get by without it, I'm going to. But the, all the local farmers around me, man, they all gather around the coffee pot and talk about how much manure they had dumped in. And I just look at them kind of weird. You know? I like to walk barefoot in my garden. <laughs> so uh, I think manure is not the way for us, but. And then, you know, if you don't have all that time, 
but you can provide it with the same uh, essential nutrients it needs, then sure, you know, um, you know, it would be cool if you had organic farmers who could provide to other organic backyard gardeners that, you know, the compost, what is needed for their gardens. And then you got an economy kind of feeding itself right here in Maine. I think Maine stands a really good shot at being, you probably know this better than I do, but you know, one of the best states in the nation where we're growing our own food, you know, locally. I think that's pretty cool. You know, I'll, um, before I forget, there's one thing um, we haven't mentioned here that is traditional and I have done it and I had to stop. I had school visits down at Kennebunkport prior to COVID and I, they would put me up overnight and I'd stay the week and I would go to the coat, to the, the seashore and gather buckets and buckets of seaweed and load the back of my vehicle and come home on that Friday loaded with seaweed. And that's what we were using for mulch. And we would, we would spread it across the garden in the fall because this was a fall school visit. Everything was pretty much you know harvested and put, trying to put the garden to bed. So we would add seaweed, but then we started noticing that in the seaweed, it was just loaded with plastics, you know? So we had to stop that. Um, if I could find seaweed, you know, that was free of it, but I don't know if that's, you can do. Maine's coastline really from one end to the other is, is fishing nets, buoys and ropes, and it breaks down in the, in the um, seaweed. And so we had to stop doing that. So, um, but you know, those, those gardens are getting the same nutrients, whether I do it the old way or, other people can buy, you know, bags of stuff and add it the new way. And as I get older, I might want to check out some of those products <laughs> instead of raking leaves for a week. You mentioned uh, your work with school groups, and that made me think of your role as an educator, as an advocate for Penobscot culture. Why is it important to preserve the traditional practices? for your community and, and also for non-native people. It, it, it shouldn't be a debate as to why native people want to preserve native culture, but you gotta, you gotta uh, frame it. So you gotta you know, explore the conversation. And I like to do that, but what if, what if that? How about this, how about that? Um, we don't need a birch bark canoe. Yet, we want that birch bark canoe. What is it about that birch bark canoe that we want when we'll probably hardly ever use it? Because we have a plastic old town canoe. Um, why do we want to grow off our, our foods if we can buy it? Why do we want to you know, learn about birch bark wigwams when we already have homes? So I think, I think if you ask these questions, it kind of puts us in a position where we have to justify why we want to preserve the culture. So that was kind of a, a back and forth for a while in my head, because I've always pushed, you know, we need to preserve the culture, mainly because my elders, as I was growing up, said, you need to know your culture. They didn't say why, 
you need to know your culture. So, um, and they didn't say how either. <laughs> it's like, all right, uh, what do I do? Well, I shot a deer and then I tanned the hide and I taught myself how to cut up the meat. Um, so it's been hands-on. And then finally, you know, this whole thing about the heart attack, the diabetes and communities, um, we've got resource extraction because we want a new cell phone, a new computer, a new this, a new that. Um, when you participate in traditional skills, um, especially, you know, growing your food, hunting that food, eating it, catching that fish and eating it. Uh, if I make a basket, more than likely I'm going to sell it. So there's kind of a disconnect there. I love making baskets that we're going to use to, to go gather fiddleheads or to winnow the fiddleheads. I mean, that to me, I just get so pumped. It's the core value behind it that, um, as I like to think of it, is it puts us back in connection with the earth in a way that nature intended us to have connect, connection. The way we're living today is not, does not have that direct connection. We're too removed. Um, and if we garden all day, that's good. But then we come back in the house and we got our electricity going, our running water. Um, and so just, just looking at food, example of food, with traditional food, we can cure diabetes. Who wouldn't want to not have to go into dialysis? So, wow, bang, all of a sudden, this traditional food is no longer just, you know, some wacko out in the backyard growing his food because he's too cheap to buy it. Or he wants to preach native this, native that. No, 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 no. I want to save my life. Uh, and I want to prevent my granddaughters from being, you know, from having to develop, you know, type, type 2 diabetes. So why not? Why not bring back traditions? And why not push hard for these fishing rights? Not only in the river, like we've done, but also in the ocean. So it, I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna care about non-native people. My first responsibility is to my own people. But if we can partner with non-native people who have the same vision for themselves, then um, you know, I think we can move this whole thing in the right direction. And, you know, Mafka has always done that. They've always been that place to go to if you want to reconnect with the earth, you know, and they do it in their way. Native people do it in our way. And in some of those ways, they overlap, you know, because we're, we're in connection with the earth in a particular manner. So I think it's um, the, the, as we start to look at climate change, I don't think there's anyone who could argue against the idea that bringing forth traditional native values isn't the answer. It obviously is. Science now, all you scientists saying, you know, uh, this regenerative uh, practices maybe is a pretty good idea. Maybe we should bring back the buffalo, you know, and the caribou and bring and, re and put the wolf back in, into the, its niche. You know, maybe the native people have been doing it kind of right for the last 15,000 years, <laughs> you know, or further back than that even. So um, I always say I love it when science catch up to the native wisdom. You know, it's like 
if you there's five deer and you shoot all five, how many are left? You know, so we'll take one or two. We'll take in what we need. We're not doing that with society. We have to have more and more and more and more, the bigger and bigger and bigger, faster and faster. You know, it's like we're losing traditional values. And going to powwow doesn't replace that. This is, I, re, I want to remind Native people too, we go to powwow, we have our potlucks, and they're very important to our community support system that we have. No one can match it. It's just beautiful. The easiest thing to preserve is our, our social networks, you know, our powwows, they call them today. We didn't call them powwows when I was growing up. But Native people gathering to eat and to dance and to, and to talk about Native issues. That's, that's, you know, part of our, um, our strong, that's been our part of our survival is um, a gathering. I think with modern lifestyles though, it's, it's those gatherings that are the things that are holding us together, but we're not also doing the rest of the rest of the, um, the culture that allows us to, you know, have lifestyles that we bring to those gatherings. So if you go to a potluck, good luck having that potluck be 100% traditional food. We advocate it and a lot of, and, and, and people will try, they'll do their best, but it's just too easy to whip up some macaroni and whatever, <laughs> you know? There are a couple of threads I wanted to follow from that. So what one is that it seems like the foundation of the traditions is the land, um, the waterways and the land. So without having access to those pieces that Native um, people have traditionally had, some of the foundation of that culture is stripped. So I, I don't know if you have thoughts about how land access plays into traditional skills. Great question. Something that um, as of late, I've been quite an advocate for, kind of loud, kind of abrasive if I have to be. I want our land back. Now, when I say that, some people go, what? <laughs> you want me to give you a land back? And I say, yes. Um, but if you're not going to give your back 40 back, help me get the conservancy groups to make those lands and waters available to Native people for our traditional practices. We don't need to come in and take title of the land. Unless you want to convey it, that's fine. We won't say no. Um, you got state parks, national parks here in this you know, national uh, monument. These are all traditional native lands. And when you get cut off from your lands and your waters, you're cut off from your culture. Too much of a piece of the culture. And so you then left, you know, struggling. Like I said earlier, you know, we were, I was raised on a very small island in the Penobscot River, a couple of backyard gardens. You know, there's just where you're going to go to hunt. You, you know, it's just too, too confined. So as we expand our need and our, our awareness of what we need, like, you know, the seal, we need access to this, to our, our, our food. We need people in this state who do own land, private land, 
to somehow be brought to this awareness that native people were here, still are here, our lands were wrongfully taken. That doesn't make anything today okay, just because it's been a couple hundred years or a hundred years or 150 years, it's still not your land, it's still our land, it's our homeland, it's where we thrived in you know, million people at one time. Um, but if native people are going to thrive again, we've got to have access to what we had at one point. So um, there's been movements in native country and, um, to figure out how to make these requests. And there are, there are people listening. You know, the, my tribe, Penobscot Nation was just gifted 750 acres um, contiguous to tribal territory that we have. So that, that'll help us in, in the area of moose hunting, deer hunting. You know, we don't really have many trappers right now, but, you know, but it gives us that option. Uh, we still know how to do it, but I guess the market is not always, <laughs> you know, it comes down to market when it comes to uh, trapping. It's not necessarily trapping food. So that's good. And, uh, but, you know, it, it's just a, a tip of the iceberg. You know, if the ocean is really where we're headed in terms of tribal um, sustenance, then I think, um, I think people along the ocean need to be approached and be open to this idea. I just looked at a thread um, this morning, somebody talking about, you know, when I was a little girl out on Vinyl Haven, the Indians used to come here by canoe and pick sweetgrass. Think about that. You have all these white people living on Vinyl Haven. They got their little white picket fences. And the Indians have to sort of navigate around the rocks with their canoes to find a place where they can hopefully have permission to gather sweetgrass. And they would also um, sell baskets to the white people. And to me, that is one of the saddest things I can picture for my people, having to go back to where they were living at one time. These are their homelands. This is where their grandparents were born and lived and thrived, you know, and then to be whittled down to, you know, peddling our wares <laughs> to to the tourists and, and whoever. So these are hard things for me as a, as a, as a native person to, you know, process and, and try to try to have positive outcomes, but they're part of this history and we have to know that, but that doesn't mean we have to close the door on it. People say, well, that happened in the past. You know, I'm not, I'm not today. I'm not responsible for it. Well, I don't, I don't buy that. Yes, it happened in the past, but you're enjoying it today. And it happened to my ancestors in the past, and I'm not able to enjoy it today. How do we, how do we bridge this connection? Uh, how do we make a connection? there? So that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see every corner of, of you know, this Wabanaki lands uh, revisited for our, our traditional uses and make, make those available. You are listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU Community Radio. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm, and my guest today is Barry Dana. 
We're discussing traditional foodways and food sovereignty. Since this is a pre-recorded show, we are not taking calls. You mentioned having some of these skills and traditions passed on to you through elders in your community. And you also mentioned having kids and sort of embodying the lifestyle yourself. So you are learning about your culture, you're honoring your culture by enacting it day to day. I'm assuming your kids are learning it from you as well. This, there's a funny thing in human uh, nature, I guess. Uh, I have five kids and two grandkids. Uh, we, we learn and appreciate through osmosis. <laughs> I did the same thing growing up. I never touched a crooked knife growing up, but as soon as I became an adult and I got that crooked knife in my hand, it was like I was always using it. And, and, and for some reason, Native people are really funny. If, if Carol is doing the language, well, then we're good. We don't have to. You know, if, if, if Barry's making those baskets, good. Someone's doing it, so I don't have to. Um, and obviously that's not enough. I mean, we all need to be partaking. So my youngest daughter has what she calls the Dana Homestead. They are adopting uh, gardening practices. They're heating with wood. They have solar. They're off grid. Um, so they, uh, she is picking up what she learned growing up, and then of course we we now that they're kind of little more into technology, you know, we learn from each other. Um, my other kids, um, well aware of it, not necessarily doing it. But if they had to, they probably would. And I make sure that my grand granddaughters come over every summer and, you know, help with the garden a little bit. And then um, before they can go see them, see the puppies. You want to see the puppies? We're going to do some garden stuff first. Well, this year, the garden stuff was helping us pick the blueberries. We had so many blueberries. Yeah. So um, and, and I think that's the way it is in Native country. And, and, in ways, you know, we've got a huge effort by people like myself who want, who need, and, and accept the responsibility for preserving culture. Then we have a lot of Native people who appreciate that. It settles them so that they know we're not losing it. But again, maybe they're not taking it on themselves. There, and then there are some, you know, that could care less. So um, we like to use the school to pass on uh, culture. We have language programs that pass on culture. So these are, you know, obviously organizations and tribal government. Uh, and then we have the individuals who take it upon ourselves to do it. So whatever, whatever there needs to be done, I, I'm pretty sure we have ways to get it done right now. I, but I would like to see the, the tribes as tribal organizations really get into, and I don't want to use the word farming, you know, kind of like agriculture. It, it's just that colonized concept, you know, in, in that um, I'm called a farmer because I do maple syrup. Well, because maple syrup is listed under agriculture. And I think 
No, I make maple syrup. <laughs> I just do it because it's part of the tradition and then we can make a little bit of money on the side selling the excess. So anyway, um, but it, like you called it earlier, food systems, you know, something like that. We need, I call it food sovereignty. That's where we need to head. It, you know, we need to put big time into it, big money, if that's what it takes. We need to get, actually, I'll, I will adopt it for this point. We need Wabanaki farms. Even if we need to hire non-native farmers to come in and show us how to raise beef, show us how to do the chickens and the eggs. Um, maybe some people want to do goats. You know, those are, those are not our traditional things, but they're so much better than just going to Walmart or Hannaford's to buy your, buy your food. And, and we have a thing in native country. If we have to hire non-natives to teach us something, they have a window of time to do that. And then they're out. So you, you have to be that special person that says, I can teach you how to garden, farm. And then once you know it, I'm done and I've done my, I've done my job. So I, I think that's where we need to head. As we come to the end of our hour together, is there anything else you would like to talk about today? Well, I think we did a lot. Um, and certainly one of my most favorite topics, traditional food, um, it's work. So you have to put time into it, a lot of sweat equity, they call it. And um, that's missing from a lot of people's lives. And I think they would be well advised to, to uh, you know, put down the, the remote control, get outdoors and grow food, grow berries, nuts, um, and anything you can to reconnect with nature, reconnect with the life force that gives us life. Instead of existing, you know, with everything being done for you, I think it's really important the, the rewards are so great when you do things for yourself. When our moose is put up at, at the end of September, just take a nice deep breath and say, we have, we have meat for the year. You know? um, yeah, it's a lot of work, and, but it's rewarding. And I think that that's the part of uh, a native value that we need, we need to bring back is that it's rewarding and it's important. We just can't keep existing in, in the modern lifestyle because it's not working for us. And it's certainly not working for the earth. Native people have concept of do no harm to the earth. And make sure when you make your decisions, you bring in the next seven generations. Well, we're not doing that. It's all lip service. If we're gonna do that, then we have to minimize fossil fuel, fossil fuel use. We have to stop flying around the country for art shows, for um, conferences. It's just necessity now that the native value of living close to the earth needs to be instilled in everybody. It can't just be native people, but it's gotta be everybody so anyway, my, my, my final message to everybody is to you know, live local, grow, grow all your food. If you can't do that, buy it local. And um, you don't have to be native. 
And if I'm native and I teach a non-native something, that doesn't mean that they're all of a sudden native. It just means, you know, the things that we need to share to each other are is information and skills that's going to help us as a global society benefit and, you know, preserve this earth. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Barry. Well, it's my pleasure. And I also um, see it as my responsibility. You know, I'm moving into my elder years here as a native person. And, you know, if I want the world to be a better place, I've got to play my part in it. We've come to the end of today's discussion on traditional foodways with Barry Dana of the Penobscot Nation. Thanks to our listeners for joining us for Common Ground Radio. Tune in on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on WERU Community Radio for more conversations about local food and organic agriculture. Archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU.org and on the WERU app. Stay tuned for more great programming.